0: Well, guys, we want to continue this series that we've been in the, in the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to be in chapter 7. We're going to look at the first 19 verses together today, and, uh, and what this passage does is come back full circle to tie back into to the end of chapter 5. Uh, if you remember last week, we talked about how that at chapter 5, verse 10, uh, the writer of Hebrews kind of mentions a guy named Melchizedek, and then he pulls away and he tries to prepare the hearts of the people to understand, to get their hearts right with the Lord so that they can then understand who this Melchizedek is and how that he uh, points us to Jesus Christ. And so we're going to dive into uh, to this, this passage today and, and look at who Melchizedek is. Uh, he wants to remind them of this man. Uh, the, the character of Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in Scripture. Uh, other than here in the book of Hebrews, it's mentioned back in Genesis and Melchizedek was a priest that shows up. Uh, if you remember when, uh, Abraham was, was called by God to leave his home country and to travel to the land that God was going to give him, uh, he and his nephew lot began to travel Their, their, their stuff became so vast that they decided to split up and, and, and lot went down towards Sodom and settled and Abraham settled in another area there close by, Uh, Sodom was a, was attacked and, and plundered, and Lot and everything that Lot owned was carried away. Abraham then uh, musters up just a few men, 318 men, and they take off after four kings and their armies to go and to retrieve Lot and to, to get back what those men had captured. And Abraham goes, and, and by a miraculous work of God, Abraham and his few men uh, defeat those guys. They, they, they regather Lot and all of his belongings and all that was taken from Sodom and and it's, it's taken back. And after that great battle, this, this man named Melchizedek shows up. We're not told where he came from. We're not told who he is or where he went afterwards. We're just told that this guy named Melchizedek, who was a priest of the Most High God, shows up. And he blesses Abraham. And Abraham gives to him a tenth of all the spoils that they had just captured from war. And that's it. Story over. Story over. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to come back and to grab that. In Psalm chapter 110, verse 4, we're also told that that there is a priest that's going to come in the order of Melchizedek, a priest who will be a priest forever. And again, it's it's a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. So what the writer of Hebrews wants to do now is to go back and show us something about Melchizedek that's going to point forward to Jesus Christ. And part of the reason for that is that the, the Jews now who are, are coming to Christ are trying to figure out how Christ is their high priest. The, the law of that day, the, the law of, of the Old Testament said that all the priests would come through the lineage of Levi. Levi was a descendant of Aaron, uh, and that all of Levi's descendants then would, uh, would be eligible to be priests, or, or that the priesthood would have to flow out of Levite. In other words, if you, didn't, if you weren't born through the lineage of Levite, then you couldn't be a priest in the temple of God. Well, Jesus was born and everybody knew that Jesus came through a different line. Jesus came through the line of Judah, which was another one of the 12 children of Israel. And so their question in their mind was, okay, if Jesus wasn't from Levi, then how can Jesus ever be qualified to be a high priest? And how can he be our high, our high priest? And so again, we're, we're talking about Jews who had come to faith in Christ and are now looking at Christianity versus Judaism and trying to go, how do we do this? What, what's, the, what's the secret? How do we put these things together? Imagine growing up in a faith that, that taught you something and that you practiced every day of your life. And then all of a sudden, things begin to change. You meet Jesus and everything begins to change. For some of you, that's not a hard thing to imagine because you grew up in a culture or an environment that's totally different than Christianity. You grew up with a mindset uh, or with parents that, that taught you something completely different than Christianity. You met Jesus and you've watched things begin to radically change. So for you, it's not hard to imagine believing something all of your life, meeting Jesus, and then going, wow, that's not real accurate. And you're having to, to rethink and redo for others of us that grew up in the church, though, we, we grow up and, and, and we are taught certain things and we begin to believe certain things, and then God reveals more to us and we go, wait a minute, what I've been believing may not be as accurate as I thought it was. I, I grew up uh, learning the Bible. Uh, my parents blessed me by taking me to church and, and, uh, and teaching me the Bible. But I began to, to read the Bible as a book of rules of things that I needed to do. And I got very good at, at rule keeping, but knew very little about grace. And so in my mind, uh, what, what made me a good Christian was doing all the do's and not doing all the don'ts. And, 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 and life became this checklist of things that I needed to do and things I needed to avoid. And, and then you meet Jesus and you, you, you experience grace and all of a sudden you go, wait a minute. It, that makes me a good person, but it doesn't make me a believer. It doesn't make me a Christian. It doesn't qualify me for heaven. So God has used the Old Testament. He's used this priestly line to bring the people to the point that they are now ready for Jesus. But, but in order for them to fully embrace Jesus as their high priest, they're going to have to disconnect from this old high priest belief. And so that's what this is about today, is trying to help them to make the transition from what they believed in the old Testament to what Jesus brings about in the new Testament. And Jesus is a completion of what they learned in the old Testament. And so I say all that, and I know it sounds kind of confusing maybe, but, but that's what this passage is really trying to do today is to, to take them back and to say, okay, I want to, I want to remind you of this person named Melchizedek. And they would have known Melchizedek. He would have been one of their, one of their, their guys that they would have been very familiar with because Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. And this was a guy that came into Abraham's life. And it wasn't just a passerby kind of thing for Abraham. It was a guy that Abraham met and and, and for whatever reason was compelled to give him a tenth of the spoils of war. And and he tithes to Melchizedek. And that story carried on for generations so these people understood who it was. There's been a whole lot of speculation over who Melchizedek is uh, was he an angel? Was he Jesus in the flesh that came early and then Jesus came back again? Was he a, a real priest or, or was he just uh, 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 you know, a bit of fol- folklore? And so there's basically seven different beliefs that, that are associated with Melchizedek. I'm not going to give you all seven of them today. Uh, uh, but I'll tell you this, that, that really only two of the, of the beliefs can, can be squared with Scripture there's a belief that that Melchizedek uh, could have been, possibly have been, the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, um, that Christ showed up in in bodily form, met with Melchizedek, Melchizedek, I mean, met with uh, Abraham, that Abraham gives this tithe to Melchizedek, who is really Jesus in flesh for that moment. Um, And then the second possibility is that Melchizedek is literally, a priest-king as he is described, that he's exactly who Scripture points him out to be. Of the two, with you look at the language, the context, and all the stuff that goes into trying to do Bible interpretation, it seems to me that the best interpretation would be that Melchizedek is a literal person who walked the face of the earth, who was a king of an area, and also a priest. So he was a king-slash-priest of this area called Salem. And so we'll walk through that, and I'll kind of explain it to you. But uh, just realize that, that there are a bunch of different interpretations of people trying to explain who he is and, um, and, and how he came to be. Let's, let's look at the first couple of verses because they're going to give us some facts about Melchizedek that help us to build a, a foundation of, of understanding how he foreshadows who Jesus is. So, so let's look at this. Melchizedek, uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, again, circling back to chapter 5, verse 10, this Melchizedek that we were talking about, he says... The king of Salem is the priest of the most high God. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So let's look at these verses. It tells us eight things that we can know about who this person Melchizedek is. The first thing is that, that he, he is the king of Salem. Salem was a, an abbreviated name for Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which will be the capital of this land that God has promised to Abraham. So what's interesting is that that Abraham's on his way to this land. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what God's giving him. He just knows God said, leave and follow me, and I'll give you a land, and I'll make you into a nation. And so Abraham's on his journey to this place that he's never been. And yet this man named Melchizedek is already there. Think about that. We are on a journey to a place that we've never been to inherit a promise that God has made to us. And yet there's a king who's already there. Lots of similarities we're going to see in this between Melchizedek and Jesus. So here he is, the king of Salem. That's the first thing we're told. The second thing we're told is that he is the priest of the most high God. So the, the, the land of Canaan, the land that, that Abraham's going to inhabit, is, is a pretty pagan land. And yet it's a land with a king who is a believer in God and a priest who is a believer in God. The people are pretty pagan, but there is a king who is, is not. A king who is, is a standout as a priest of the Most High God. That's the second thing we know. So he's king of Salem, king of Jerusalem. He's a priest of the Most High God. The third thing we're told about him is what his name means. His name is Melchizedek, and that translated means king of righteousness. The word Melech in Hebrew means king. Sadek means righteousness. He is the king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And then also he is called the king of Salem. Again, Salem being a short of, of Jerusalem, but, but Salem means peace. And so it means he is the king of peace. And, and you go, why is the author spending time telling us what this dude's name and title mean? Because everything about this, this person, Melchizedek, is going to point us forward to who Jesus is. Titles and names in those days meant everything. That's why when Jesus met some of his disciples, one of the first things he does is to change their name. He changes their identity. It, it, your name was, it was a big part of, 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 of how people saw you and what you were. Today, we, we get a baby book name and say, oh, let me find a name, or, or we do. I think some people just take a, a Scrabble box and throw it on the floor and go, oh, there we go. That's my kid's name. You know, I mean, but names back then meant something, and, and, and these names described your purpose or who you were or where you were headed or what God had for you to do, and so these, these names meant something. If, if his name wasn't important, honestly, it wouldn't have been included in Scripture, The the writer of Hebrews was not trying to finish a 500-word essay and needed a few extra words. He wasn't doing that. It's important. And so these, these things are going to point forward to Jesus. Well, how does that point forward to Jesus? Is Jesus a king of righteousness? Absolutely. Is Jesus the prince of peace? Absolutely. All of these things that we're going to learn about Melchizedek are going to point forward to who Jesus is. So number three, his name means king of Righteous. Number four, he, his name, his, his title is the, the king of peace. Number five, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Uh-oh, what does that mean? Does it mean he didn't have a father or a mother? No, it means they didn't know. Scripture had not recorded who his mother, who his father, or any of his genealogy. You say, why is that important? Well, it goes back to the qualifications of a priest. You could only become a priest if you could tie your lineage to Levite. And yet this guy had no ties to Levite. This guy was here long before Levite ever came along. He, he was there long before, and, and, and the writer is going to use that very point to show us how that Jesus can come from the tribe of Judah and still be a priest So here's a guy who we don't know his father, we don't know his mother, and we have no clue of his genealogy, yet he is declared to be the priest of the Most High God. So what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here, and I need you to grab this, okay? If Melchizedek, who you guys idolize and who you think was, was an incredible priest of God that was so incredible that Abraham would give him a tenth of the spoils, if he didn't have a pedigree, and yet was declared to be the priest of the Most High God, then why can't Jesus be? So he says he has no father, mother, or genealogy. He's not talking literally. He's just saying it's unknown. We have no idea. It's not recorded in Scripture. He, he gives us no proof of a pri- priestly lineage. That's not what made him the priest of the Most High God. And he says he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. We don't know where he came from. And we don't know where he ended up. Scripture does not tell us why, because that was not important. But think about this. Jesus didn't have the pedigree to be a priest in the Jerusalem temple. And Jesus had no beginning of days, nor end of life. And then the eighth thing, or the seventh thing, is that Melchizedek resembled the Son of God. Notice that he does not reverse that. He does not say the son of God resembles Melchizedek. He says the Melchizedek resembles the son of God. Who came first? Melchizedek or the son of God? Son of God. And so he says that he resembles the son of God. And number eight, he continues as a priest forever. In other words, his term did not expire. Some of the study I did this week talked about Jewish priests and And most of your Jewish priests served from the age of 25 to 50, and at age 50, they retired. They were done, and they replaced them. And we'll see later on in the book of Hebrews that it talks about this great big turnover of priests that they either they they died in office and had to be replaced, or their term expired and they had to be replaced. But priests were constantly being raised up, trained, uh, used, and then retired. And the thing they're going to make the difference here is that this priest was going to be able to serve forever. In other words, his term did not expire like the Levitical priest. So he's building up this person of Melchizedek. He's tying in some imagery that's going to tie him into Jesus because what he wants to do is to use Melchizedek as a foreshadowing or a, a symbol of who Jesus was. We call that typology in, in, in theology where you, you take a person or a type and it shows you something about a person or, or someone else that's to come. And so Melchizedek is going to be the picture of the person, just like we've been saying all along, that what the writer of Hebrews does is to take an Old Testament picture and to show us how that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So he's doing that here. He's going to say, here's this person that's going to point us forward to Jesus Christ. He's, he's, a, he's a literal figure. He's a literal king. He's a literal priest. In a literal place that Abraham was going to. And he remained a priest forever. It didn't get there because of his lineage. He didn't get there because of what he, he, or he, who he had been born to. He got there because he was chosen and appointed by God. And the same will be true of Jesus. So here's how he ties it in. He's given us the credentials now of Melchizedek. He said, this dude that you guys admire... There's some things about him that didn't fit the the Levitical priesthood. He said, I want you to see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who've received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers, though these also are descendants of Abraham. Now he's beginning to to set up this, this stage for a comparison of the two. He says, here's Melchizedek, and now let's talk about your priest. Your priest came in, and, and they were commanded by the law. They were told that they were to take tithes from the people. The, the Levites, who were the priests and, and, and the ones that served in the temple, were not given a portion of the land when they inherited the promised land. But they were told that they would receive their support and their income from the people, that that's the way that God had designed for it to be. That, that they would not have their own land as, as part of their inheritance, but, but they, would, they would receive their income from the people. So they were to take tithes from the people. And those people were their brothers. So they were equal, and yet God had, had placed them in a position where they would be dependent upon their brothers. And they're all descendants from Abraham. But this man, again, referring back now to Melchizedek, this man who does not have his descent from them, in other words, Melchizedek came way before any of Abraham's children were born. This promise is made. This encounter happens long before Abraham and Sarah ever had a child. All that's been done is God's come to Abraham and says, Hey, leave your home and come and follow me. The covenant's not even been established yet. Abraham is in the process of just being obedient to God. God meets him there, and, and, and this, this, this encounter takes place. So Melchizedek, who doesn't have his descent from them, he received tithes from Abraham, and he blessed him who had the promises. And then he says in verse 7, it's beyond dispute. Nobody would argue the fact that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior. So what he's doing now is he's setting it up and saying this, this man, Melchizedek, that received an offering from Abraham was greater than Abraham. That would be hard for a Jew to swallow at face value. Abraham was the founding father of the Jewish faith. And you're telling me that somebody was greater than Abraham? He says, absolutely. That's why Abraham gave him a tithe. That's why Abraham gave to him the spoils. And he blessed Abraham. If we read in in Genesis chapter 14, um, we see how that that encounter took place. It says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him. He blessed Abraham. And said, blessed be Abram by the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So here's this encounter where he is blessing Abram. And Abram is is giving back to him. It's part of the, 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 the promise that God would make later to Abraham, where he says, Abraham, those that bless you I'm going to bless, and those that, that curse you I will curse. And so here is this encounter where this man blesses him, but he says, get this, the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, which is Melchizedek. In the one case, in the case of the Levitical priesthood that these Jews would have been familiar with, tithes are received by mortal men, those who will die and those who will be replaced. But in the other case, the case of Melchizedek, tithes are received by the one of whom it's testified that he lives. And then he shows us how the symbolism plays here. He says one might even say, so in other words, he's saying this is, not, this is figurative, it's not literal, but one might even say that Levi himself, and by that all those who came through the priesthood, But Levite himself, who received tithes, also paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Again, this is all genealogy stuff tied in, but he's saying, you know what, when Abraham blessed and gave to Melchizedek, so did all of his descendants. That's what he's saying. And so he's saying, hey, even the priest of today figuratively gave a tithe to Melchizedek showing that they are inferior to Melchizedek. So he's setting up this huge argument that Melchizedek is the superior over Abraham and over the whole priestly line. That the the priestly role of Melchizedek is superior to the priestly role of all these Levite priests. So he's trying to show them that what God has done is to bring something about that is even greater than what they've been used to. So, you following me so far? Is it making sense? He's setting up an argument to show them that Melchizedek was greater because now he's about to show them how that Melchizedek and Jesus are so similar. And if Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and greater than their priest, guess what? So is Jesus. Okay. So here we go to the next few verses. He says, now, here's, here's the problem with the old priesthood. He said, if perfection had been attainable, and when he says perfection, he's talking about salvation. If we could have been made perfect, if we could have been made whole, if we could have been brought into the presence of God with the old priesthood, if it had been perfect, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, then here's the question What further need would there have been? for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. So here's what he's saying. If, if your Old Testament priests could have brought you into the presence of God and made you right and holy and let you stand before God, if they could have done that, there would have been no need for Jesus to come. No need for another priest in the order of Melchizedek to show up. Because no matter how many times they offered a sacrifice, no matter how many animals were slain in the Old Testament, no matter how many times blood was shed, uh, atonement was made, blood was sprinkled on on the, the Ark of the Covenant, no matter how many times they did that, there was still something that stood between the people and God. The people couldn't draw near. There was a limit. They could come so far, and then somebody had to represent them, but they themselves could not come into the presence of God. No matter how many animal sacrifices, repeated again year after year, day after day, it could not bring them into the presence of God. And that's the same problem that we face with our works. That no matter how much good I do, no matter how many days I check off every single box, It's still not enough to bring me into the presence of God. I can't atone for my own sin. Something still stands between me and God, and that's sin. And we needed somebody that could abolish the barrier that stood between us and God. Because in the end, guys, it's not good enough to just get close We need to come into the presence of God. We need to be given access behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God where we find grace and mercy for our time of need. So no matter what the the Old Testament priest did, he's saying, no matter what they did, it, it couldn't get you perfect. It couldn't bring you behind the curtain. The priest could go and represent you there, but he couldn't take you there. There was a limit to what the Old Testament priest could do. Now, here's the cool thing. Jesus knew that before he ever established the Old Testament priesthood. Melchizedek was introduced long before the Levitical priesthood was ever organized. God is always one step ahead in preparing for us. The Levitical priesthood was going to show us that, 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 there, was, that there was stuff that could be done to, to temporarily, if you will, atone for our sin. But even that had its limits. Even that couldn't bring us into the presence of God. For, for those who are still trying today to just get it together and to be good and to, 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 to please God, this is such a message of encouragement for you. In, in, in one way, it's a discouragement. In another way, it's an encouragement. The, the discouraging part is this, that no matter how good you become, you still can't save yourself. You still can't bring yourself into the presence of God, no matter how much good you do. we said this a bunch, but let me say it again. How many people do you have to kill to be a murderer? Just one. And how many sins do you have to commit to be a sinner? Just one. And, and, and because we are sinners, we can't come into the presence of God unless we have a priest who has made a way for us. And what he's saying here is these Old Testament priests could not make the way. They could not bring us into the presence of God. He says, if that perfection had been attainable, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. But because it was not, and because the order of Aaron could not accomplish that, God had set up the order of Melchizedek long before the order of Aaron. Now, verse 12 is kind of a confusing verse, but look at this. It says, for when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. You're going, okay, what's, what's he saying? Well, he's encouraging these people to change from the order of Levi to the order of Melchizedek. Levite said, you have to be a Levite to become a priest. Melchizedek says, it's not about your genealogy. It's not about your mama. It's not about your daddy it's about God and it's about God calling you and appointing you to that position. And he's saying, when there's a change in, in the order of the priesthood, there has to be a change in the rules that govern who can be our priest. And so he's saying, that's why, and he's going to follow it up here. That's why Jesus, who was from the tribe of Judah can be qualified to be our priest. Jesus wasn't qualified because of his mother or father's lineage. Jesus was qualified to be our priest because God had appointed him to be our priest. So let's look at that and how it unpacks here, okay? It says, when there's a change of the priesthood, there's a change in the law. For the one of whom these things are spoken, now he's, he's, he's just brought it forward to Jesus at this point, okay? The one that Melchizedek points to, the one that this whole Old Testament system points to, the one that everything before has pointed to, Jesus, he says, the one for whom these things are written, or are spoken, belonged to another tribe. He didn't belong to the tribe of Levi. And, and from his tribe, this other tribe, no one has ever served at the altar. Again, the, the rule was the only people who could be priests were those who were born through Levi. And so he's saying Jesus came from a different tribe, and nobody from Jesus' tribe has ever served at the altar. He says it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that, that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Moses didn't say, hey, listen, everybody comes from Levi, but one day we'll have a guy from Judah. Moses didn't say that. So here's the Jews' struggle. How do we make Jesus who came from Judah our priest? And he says the only way that happens is for the rules to change when the priesthood changes. We're going from an Old Testament priesthood that is temporal, that, that, that requires a change of priest every few years to an eternal priest who lives and reigns forever. And when the rules change about the order of the priest, the rules change about who can be that priest. And we know scripture says the only one that could be that priest was the sinless, spotless lamb of God. The one who was tempted in every way that we were tempted, yet without sin. The one who said, uh, you know, this is why I've come, is to give my life as a ransom for many. The one who says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. It's, It's Jesus who came and said, Father, I've given myself to you, not my will, but your will be done. The only one that would be qualified for that was qualified not by his genealogy, not by his pedigree, Not by his parents or or, or anybody else in in that lineage, but he was qualified because he was appointed by God to serve as our priest. And Moses said nothing about anybody from Judah ever serving as a priest. But he says in verse 15, But this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So he says it's obvious that Jesus is not of the line of Levite. But Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. Now he's tying the knot between Jesus and Melchizedek. This Melchizedek that had eight things, remember? It's just like Jesus who has those same things. He was the king of Jerusalem. But it's not the physical Jerusalem. It's the king of heaven. The new Jerusalem that Revelation talks about that's coming down. Jesus is the king of that place. It's the place that God has called his people to go to. It's the place that right now today, as you take this breath, we are in journey to. Just like Abraham was in journey from where he was to where God had promised him. We are in the process of going to a place we've never been. But we are introduced now to the king of that place that we are headed. He is the priest of the most high God. So was Jesus. His name is a king of righteousness. So is Jesus. Prince of peace, the king of peace. So is Jesus. It wasn't his father, mother, or genealogy that, that placed him in that. It was God, and it's so true of Jesus. No beginning of day, no end of life. And the only difference is he doesn't just resemble the son of God. He is the son of God. And he continues as a priest forever. He's saying we have a priest, guys, who is greater than Melchizedek. He's in the likeness of Melchizedek, but he is greater. And he's become a priest not on the basis of the legal requirements concerning bodily descent. Let's unpack that. He is our priest not based upon the legal requirements Concerning bodily descent. So what does that mean? He's our priest, not based upon his lineage. Not based upon his bloodline. But based on the power of an indestructible life. How does Jesus become our priest? He does so because he can't die. And he is our priest forever. They put him to death. And God raised him up. He has an indestructible life. He can serve as our priest forever. For it is witnessed of him. And now here's that quote from Psalm 110, uh, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then he says, for on the one hand, a former commandment, which concerned the priest and and their lineage, that's now set aside because it was weak and it was useless. It could not accomplish salvation for us. Because the law made nothing perfect. You say, Rob, why did God give us the law if it couldn't make us perfect? Have you ever thought about that? Why does God give us all these commandments if we can't keep them? You ever given that thought? Why does God ask us to do something that we can't do? To show us that we can't. And that we need somebody else to do that for us. That's why. If you're still trying to figure out how to do it all, let me introduce you to grace, which says you can't. But Jesus did. That's the purpose of God showing us the the stuff in Scripture. The the purpose of the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin is not to beat us down and load us with with guilt. The purpose of God showing us our sin is so that we can change and become more like Jesus. To show us that that we can't overcome that on our own, but to show us that he can help us overcome that as we submit to him. The purpose of the law was not to make us perfect. It can't make anything perfect. But it can show us that perfection is required and I can't achieve it, so I need somebody else to do that for me. And that's what our Most High Priest of God has done. So he says, on the one hand, it shows us that we can't, that it's powerless, it's, it's useless. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And we've seen back in chapter 6 that better hope is Jesus. So in, in, in the place of all of those priests, and he'll come on and, and what he'll begin to do now in, in, the, in the next couple chapters of Hebrew is to show us how that these priests work day and night, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, sacrificing again and again and again and again and again. And all of that couldn't make us perfect. But that Jesus offered the sacrifice once and for all that's able to make us perfect, acceptable in the presence of God. Here's what he's going to say in the rest of Hebrews is that Jesus came and, and he tore down the barrier that stood between us and God. He, he, remember when Christ was crucified, the veil of the temple was torn. The, the, the thing that separated us from God was ripped wide open. And now Jesus says, I want you to come and draw near to God. And this last phrase of Hebrews 7.19 is really the climax of everything that he's saying here. He's saying we have a better hope that's been introduced through which we draw near to God. That is the whole purpose of the Christian life, is to draw near to God. Up to this point, the Jews could get so far and, and go no farther. They, they, could, they could come into the courtyard, they could present their animal, and they could go no farther. The average ordinary priest then could take the animal and they could go into the next room maybe with it, but but they could go no farther. And only the high priest once a year could go behind that veil and into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice quickly for the people of the Lord and then come back out. There were barriers between them and the presence of God. And what our high priest did was to tear down all the barriers and to say, come and draw near. Come and draw near. That's the call of God upon every believer's life. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to these people. There's nothing left to keep you out of the presence of God. Come. But don't we need to offer a few more sacrifices? Don't we need to go and show our repentance? Don't we need to go and confess to the priest? Don't we need to go and? And they kept filling in all these things they thought they needed to do. But I was taught as a kid I needed... That's done. That stuff, he says, could never make you perfect. It can never put you at peace with God. It can never make you righteous. Well then, who does? Only the king of righteousness can make you righteous. Only the king of peace can put your heart at rest. And those priests don't come through a a genealogy. He was appointed by God. To come and to live and to offer himself as our sacrifice for our sins. And that's what Jesus did. And he tore down the wall of division that kept us out of the presence of God. Why? Because God's greatest desire for you and I is that we draw near to God. So let me ask you this morning as we close. What's keeping you out of the presence of God? What is keeping you from drawing near to God? Is it this belief that you were taught that somehow you got to do good and and check off all the boxes and get everything right, and then maybe, maybe, maybe God would would, would motion you on in? The Bible says that will never work. You'll never get good enough to, to, to just earn your way in. What, what is it that's keeping you from 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 seeing that and, and, and coming in and, and, and being there in the presence of God? Is it sin that you cherish more than a relationship with God? For some people, that's that's the case. They're saying, hey, the way may be open, but I, I'm, not, I'm not going in there yet. I'm going to live my own life and do my own thing. And then one day, I'll settle down. And I'll get things right with God. One day I'll repent of the sin that I knows in my life that shouldn't be in my life. And one day I'm going to deal with that. But right now, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm good. I'm complacent. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. Got a good job. Living in a good situation. I'm happy. And that can keep us out of the presence of God. It's what kept the children of Israel out of the promised land, Remember? Fear can keep us out of the presence of God. Satisfaction where we are can keep us out of the presence of God. But the writer of Hebrews is saying we were made for this, to draw near to God. We were made to come into his presence and to to, to draw near to him. And yet that never was possible before Jesus came. What the writer of Hebrews is saying in a nutshell is that all the other ways fell short. The entire system, the law, the temple, the priesthood, could in no way bring people into the presence of God. Everything about the structure, everything about the model that God had set up, everything about even the, the, the layout of the temple, prohibited people from coming anywhere near the holy place or the holy of holies where the presence of God dwelt. But Jesus is our better hope, and he removed those barriers, and he allows us entrance into God's presence. Something that the law and the temple could never accomplish on its own. Here's what he's saying. Your your father, the father of your nation, Abraham, submitted to a priest of God and he was blessed. And the father of our faith recognized that there was one sent by God. He was not from the Levitical line, but he was similar to, to this Melchizedek who was sent by God. And like Abraham, we are called to recognize him, Jesus, as our priest sent by God. To welcome him as our priest to represent us before the Lord. To submit ourselves to him as the one who will present us holy and righteous and pure before God. And then to be blessed by him. Like Abraham... Jesus is superior to this Levitical priest and his work makes us perfect and it grants us access to God. So what that means is this, I can stop trying to make myself perfect. I'll never accomplish that. I can stop trying to make myself pleasing enough to God. I can't accomplish that. But here's the good news, I don't have to. Because Jesus has already done that. So instead of trying, I can trust. I can trust that Jesus is our high priest, that he has opened the way, that I am welcomed and encouraged and wanted in the presence of God. I've got to leave behind my sin and desire God more than anything else. I've got to place truth over tradition. I've got to place this relationship with God over any kind of, of religion that can, that can hold me back. And I've got to desire to be holy and righteous through the blood of Christ so I can be at peace and at rest in the presence of God. God calls you to come into his presence. He's not going to drag you kicking and screaming. He's not going to force you to leave your sin behind in order to enter into the place that he has created for you in his presence. But he offers you everything you need to get there it's your choice. Will I stay where I'm at or will I enter into the presence of God and be blessed? That's my choice. But I can't cling to my sin and enter into the presence of God. I've got to lay my sin down at the cross of Christ. Let it be covered by the blood of Christ and then get up from there and come into the presence of God. Christ has made the way. He has done what the law and the Levitical priesthood could not do. And he invites us to come and to draw near to God. He is our better hope. Here's the writer saying, your hope has been in the priest and what they could do for you. You have a real priest of God who is a better hope than anything the Old Testament ever could have offered you. Put your trust in him and let him lead you into this relationship with God. As we close, what could be better? What could be better than drawing near to the God that made you, the God that loved you, the God that died for you, and the God that wants you in his presence forever? What could this life offer you that even comes close to comparing? Let's pray.